0: John 7, this is the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? There was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this, man, uh, uh, that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority speaks his own glory seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because in the Sabbath I made a, whole, a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is the word of the Lord, and we give thanks to him. I'm sure we're
1: familiar with the, the biblical idea of Us as human beings being made in the image of God. We're made in the image of God. It's very clearly stated there in Genesis 1. That affects absolutely everything about who we are and how we live. We're made in the image of God. However, the tendency of natural man is to try and make God in our image. Or we make Jesus in our image. Or we try. And that's why there are so many images of Jesus around the world today, even many images of Jesus in the church today. Of course, there's lots and lots of interest in Jesus. Who wouldn't be interested in him? But sadly, there's less understanding of who he really is. Therefore, we really need to understand the real Jesus. In fact, one commentator put it like this. We make him into a better version of ourselves. We make him into a better version of ourselves. Now think about that. A better version of what I believe. A better um, version of what I emphasize. A better version of what I think. We kind of create that and say, that's Jesus. Of course that's wrong on so many levels. We need the real Jesus, and we need to understand who He is. So, as a people, we need to submit to the Scriptures, humbly accept who Jesus is as He's presented to us in the Word and by the power of the Spirit. Our duty, therefore, is to read and to think, to listen and to learn. Our duty is to be led by the Word and by the Spirit. That's what we're about as a congregation. I hope that's always going to be the case. Now, the events of chapter 7 of John's gospel take place about six months after the feeding of the 5,000 and the teaching of chapter 6. Not every gospel can give all the details about everything. Other gospels do give some more details about that ministry, those months, those six months ministry in Galilee. For instance, Mark chapter 7, 8, and 9. If you're interested, you can follow what happened in those six months. But we come to chapter 7, It's six months later. And we're given more details in chapter 7 about who Jesus is. The real Jesus. And how we should respond to him. And in fact, how we should expect those we're witnessing to, to respond to him. And we're going to look at the first part of chapter 7 today. We're going to think of two things. First of all, perfect timing. And then perfect teaching. Perfect timing is the first section, the first 13 verses of chapter uh, of 7. Yes, the Feast of the Tabernacles, or the Feast of the Booths, it's the same thing, was one of the three great festivals held in Jerusalem each year. It was regarded, by the way, as the holiest of the three festivals. And it commemorated God's care for the people of Israel during the 40 years in the wilderness. And as an act of pilgrimage, guess what the people did? They came to Jerusalem, and they camped outdoors in tents made of branches to to try and remember what happened uh, in the wilderness period. So this feast was a feast of celebration and thanksgiving, uh, lots of happiness. It was a family camp for all. Can you picture the scene of happiness and joy and excitement in Jerusalem on this occasion? Now, sadly, Jerusalem and Israel are sad places today, and we need to be praying much for that situation in the Middle East, as Jeff already prayed um, for them on our behalf. But back these years ago, Jesus had four brothers. And they wanted Jesus to go to Jerusalem with them for the feast. That's what they wanted. They seem to have appointed themselves as, a, as kind of a political election campaign team, close advisors to Jesus. We see that in verses uh, 3 and 4. Jesus' brothers said to him, you ought to leave here, Galilee, go to Judea, so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret since you're doing these things. Show yourself to the world." Come on, Jesus, get your act together. Get to Jerusalem. Why are you staying here in Galilee? But the key is is verse five. Verse five, this is key. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Let that sink into your minds. Even his own brothers did not believe in him. They were with him. They were following him. But they didn't believe in him. But basically what they're saying there in verses three and four is, Jesus, you're wasting your time here in Galilee. Your popularity is waning. People are leaving and, not, and going back and they're not following you the way they used to. You've got to get the show back on the road, brother. We need some fireworks. We need a big show. We need to make a big statement. And the best and only place to do that, of course, is Jerusalem. During a feast when there's lots of excitement and lots of people, big feast, big crowd, big opportunity, perfect place, Jesus, for you to make yourself known. And it sounds reasonable, doesn't it? It sounds reasonable. But, but, these boys had no understanding of the real Jesus, they had no love for the real Jesus. And actually what they were simply doing is pointing to what they regarded as his failure and staying in Galilee and working with the poor and the needy and the sick and the ignorant there. Some point out, of course, I think rightly, it's almost like the third temptation of Satan to Jesus recorded in Luke 4. Do you remember the third temptation? Jesus, why don't you go up onto the temple peak, throw yourself off the temple peak, and the angels will protect you, then people will see and believe and follow. Do you remember that? And Jesus responded by saying, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Here, it's a go to Jerusalem, Jesus, and let's get this political train back on track, and then people will see and believe and follow. And of course, the real Jesus saw past the temptation. First of all, it came from Satan. Now it's from his brothers, and he refused. Verse five: even his own brothers did not believe in him. This is painful, but this happens, does it not? Imagine the brothers of Jesus, who saw and heard. Absolutely everything. They saw the miracles. They heard the teaching with authority. And still, they did not believe. Didn't we say that last week when the crowds decided that they were going to stop following because of the hard teaching? Here we have even closer than that. And they were so close to Jesus physically, emotionally, and yet so far. And their attitude is, come on, put on the big show, be spectacular, win the punters, get them in, keep them in, get them on your side. And Jesus "No. only God can draw souls and win souls and save souls and keep souls, and he's going to do it his way. Imagine how cruel a family can be. And here for Jesus, it was his very own brothers. Maybe you know something about the rejection of family because of your faith. We hear it more and more as the days go by. Jesus knows all about rejection. Jesus knows all about misunderstanding. Jesus knows my physical brothers, my half-brothers didn't know who I was, even though they saw everything and heard everything. Jesus understands your pain, if that's your situation. Jesus offers you a brand new family. It's called his church, his body. This is your family. This is my family. See, the brothers couldn't and wouldn't see and love and follow the real Jesus. The brothers were simply pushing another agenda, their own agenda, and that often happens within religious circles. People have an agenda, and they want to push the agenda, and they use Jesus to push the agenda. It's happened for 2,000 years. It still happens today. In this case, it was more miracles, more displays of power. Then people will follow you, and maybe secretly they were part of the group that wanted just to overthrow the Romans and a freedom in Israel, But verse 6, Jesus answers very clearly, therefore Jesus told them, the right time for me has not yet come, for you any time is right. Yeah, he says, listen, you, you guys are living your lives the way you are, you're, you're living apart from or separated from God, the Father, and um, so you can go any time, it's not going to affect you, it's not going to change you but I'm on a mission, he says. My time has not yet come. The right time has not yet come. He's on a mission. The mission, of course, is going to end up in Calvary, dying as our substitute, paying the price of our sin. And he's not going to be diverted by some kind of political style popularity drive that the brothers were interested in, using Jesus just to get to their ends. Verse 7, Jesus continues, the world cannot hit you because basically you're like them, but it hits me, because I testify that what it does is evil. The brothers were not hated by the religious leaders, but Jesus was. They were on the world's side. Jesus was on the Father's side. And again, we've got to see that they saw it all. They knew him as closely as anyone could, but they didn't know and didn't want the real Jesus. They didn't and couldn't challenge the status quo. They did not irritate the religious leaders. They did not speak out against evil. But Jesus did all three. And for that reason, he would not fall into their trap. And so, Jesus would not join a circus by going up with them to the feast with the crowd. He wasn't going to do that. He wasn't going to play their game. Verse 8 and 9. You go to the feast. I am not yet, that's a key word there, yet going up to the feast, or this feast, because for me the right time has not yet come. Having this, he stayed in Galilee. Now, you know that eventually he goes up, so he's not telling a lie here. What he's simply saying is, I'm not going to go up with the crowd I'm not going up now your way. The right time has not yet come. But verse 10, however, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Later, of course, the right time would come. And there'd be no hesitation about going publicly. And we know about that because of the Palm Sunday, he, he entered Jerusalem publicly on a donkey. And, of course, Jesus was right. Isn't he always? Verse 11. We know what would have happened if he'd gone and joined the circus that the brothers were trying to encourage him to do. Verse 11. Now, at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, where is that man? They, they wanted him. But what did they want, the Jews? Miracles? Bread? Healing? Probably. That's about the limit of their interest in Him. Because in most cultures, in most places, in most times, there's always going to be a group of people searching for these kinds of things. And the temptation for the church is to offer these things uh, uh, and offer these uh, answers to these demands. Oh, feed us, heal us, keep us, make us happy, entertain us. That's the temptation for every church to enter into that kind of circus. But that's not why Jesus came. That was not their real need. And that's not what we should emphasize. Again, I ask the question do we want the real Jesus whose timing is perfect? The perfect agenda with the perfect timing with the perfect ministry, or do we actually secretly want some kind of made-up Jesus created for and from, for and from our human weakness who simply feeds us and heals us and entertains us and satisfies all our longings? See, what we see here is Jesus clearly polarizing people. Verses 12 and 13. Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Notice verse 13. Others replied, no, he deceives the people, but no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Oh, so some, verse 12. Oh, yes, he's a, he's a good man. Look at his wonderful deeds. Listen to his wonderful words. He explains life to us. He makes sense of the Bible to us. Isn't he wonderful? Verse 13, oh, no, no, he's not wonderful. He's a bad man. He deceives people. He tells lies. You see, some want him, and some want him dead. There's a war going on. There always is, even today, in our hearts and minds. Do we want the real Jesus, or do we want our attempt at creating our own idea of Jesus? See, what you believe about Jesus and what you know about Jesus it will affect how you will respond to Jesus. So, do you kind of like him to be a miracle worker? He comes and gives miracles on top for you and your family and your friends. You click the fingers, and like a genie in a lamp, he comes and he heals and he, he fixes and he supplies all your money problems and this and that and relationship issues. Is he a social reformer that you want to say, "Oh, he'd come into the world here and and fix the mess in the world"? Or do you think he's kind of just a niche scratcher, whatever itch you might have—that religious itch—he comes, he scratches. Ah, yes, I feel relief now; I can get on with my own life. Or is he the real Jesus? Notice verse eight: "There, for me, the right time has not yet come. For me." The right time has not yet come. The cross and the resurrection. Jesus was not going to enter into some kind of popularity contest, some kind of political election, some kind of man centered agenda. His mission, when the right time would come, shortly, by the way, it wasn't going to be a long time away, when the right time would come, was to die. But not now. He would die in the Father's timing not in his brother's timing. The real Jesus, with the perfect timing for the perfect agenda, his father's. They didn't want him. And let's be honest, for 2,000 years, most people don't want the real Jesus. They don't. Oh, they'll make up their fanciful theories about him but they don't want the real Jesus. So do you see the real Jesus here, even just revealed to us even in this little snippet of the story of the gospel? His motivation, godly. His control, absolute. His pure desire to go to the cross at the right time. Do you see it all? Do you want the real Jesus, or are you more interested in bread and miracles? The perfect Jesus, with a resolve to do the Father's will, at the perfect time. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Perfect timing, perfect teaching. So we see the real Jesus here in, in action, doing what? Well, the heading gives the clue, teaching in verses 14 through the, to 24, the end of our, um, the limit of our passage study today. Yes, of course He comes. I'm not, there's no contradiction here. Yes, He comes to be the sacrifice for uh, our sins, but always within the context of teaching us the truth. It's all over the Bible. Like, for instance, there's one example, Mark 1, verse 38, where, where the disciples come to say, listen, the people are looking for you, and there's lots of sick people and hungry people and needy people. Come and, come and fix them. And what did Jesus say? Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so that I may preach there also. That is why I have come. By the way, it's in all the Gospels. It's all over the place. So what do we see in verse 14? Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. Not sharing information, but enabling transformation. He's always interested in that, isn't he? Yes, we need him as our Savior, but we also need him as our teacher. So here's the question I ask you. Is he your teacher? Your personal teacher? Your family teacher? Is Jesus your church teacher? I mean, is he the teacher here? so that you might know the truth for worshiping and living and serving and even giving. Here's a wee theory I have gleaned over the years. It's easy to have Jesus as some kind of of a general advisor in some kind of um, theoretical way. So that we can dip into the theory of Jesus' teaching and then we can dip out. We can pick and we can choose. But all we need for belief and behavior, for creed and for doctrine, is in Jesus. He's a teacher, but he has to be my teacher, your teacher. Like for instance, belief, what we believe about creation, what we believe about sin, what we believe about salvation, what we believe about heaven. Is he your teacher about these things? And a multitude of other things. Is he what you believe? Is he your teacher? Or, or what about your behavior? I mean, how you treat your, the people that he's given to you in your life, your family, for instance. Is he your teacher? How you treat your neighbors, how you treat your work, how you treat your gifts, how you treat your money, how you treat your time. Is he your teacher in these things? Or kind of just a distant advisor? Every realm of life comes under his lordship and his authority. So I say again, some want a teacher in theory. Some want a teacher as an advisory role. And he longs to be and he demands to be teacher of, a, of everything to do with life and witness. So, I ask you again, is the real Jesus a teacher or the teacher? Is the real Jesus a teacher or my teacher? There's, there's, there's a difference. Can, can you see that? I mean, there's a world of difference. And sometimes we can be sucked into thinking, oh, I kind of follow Jesus in theory or follow him in some kind of advisory role. We think that that's sufficient. No, it is not sufficient. It is not sufficient. And the people were amazed, verse 15. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? They were amazed, and of course they should be, no training and yet deep learning, piercing wisdom, no silly talk, no nonsense, no wasted words. they were amazed, and so should we, and say, I want this teaching. I need this teaching. Let's think about the content of his teaching. First of all there in verse 16, look what he says. My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. Now, isn't that a tremendous claim? He didn't quote the rabbis. He was no self-taught rabbi. He got it all from God, direct, godly teaching. Read it again. My teaching is not my own, so don't give me amazement. It comes from him who sent me. Realize the source. Here's a very important point. Do you want to read and hear Jesus properly? Do you? Do you really want to hear and read Jesus properly? I hope the answer is yes. Well then, if it's yes, you've got to realize he speaks from God himself. He, you've got to realize he's the second person of the Trinity. You've got to realize that his teaching is straight from heaven. The whole Bible. Jesus says in the Sermon that. The smallest letter, the least stroke of a pen is all mine, and it's all true, it's all divine. Perfect teaching. Wish we could spend longer than that, but we haven't got time. Um, but it's also verified there in verse sixteen. Verified this, this, the content of his teaching. Verse seventeen: If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I am, or whether I speak on my own. Here's another question I ask for you do you want to know if Jesus is for real? I want, do you ever wonder if Jesus is for real? Do you ever wonder if he really is who he claims to be? Is he really who the Bible claims him to be? And do you want to know if he's for real? Do, do you want to know deep inside you that what he says is spot on, perfect? Well, verse 17 tells us how. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. See, the resolution is that first of all, first of all, we do the will of God. Then we will be confident and certain of Him being right. That comes second. You see that? The problem with us is we want to know first if it's for real, and then we may choose to do it. Jesus says, no, choose to do it and then you will know. Again, there's a world of difference. You see how close we can come to the truth and yet still miss it if we get that last little bit wrong? It's a matter of um, reaping what you sow. If you sow in obedience, you will reap confidence. Sow in obedience, reap in confidence. So if you're unbeliever this morning, don't wait around for angels to come and sing or bright lights to shine do, do what verse 17 says if anyone chooses to do god's will he will find out whether my teaching comes from god or whether i speak from my own so if you're an unbeliever this morning then you repent of your sins you come to him for forgiveness you cast upon his mercy then then from the depths of your very soul he will make it known to you that he's real he will you'll know he's for real, the real Jesus. But if you're a believer, it's the same for you. Do what he says. Be humble and slay pride. Be generous and slay hoarding. Be holy and slay lust and greed and anger. You see, he's the perfect teacher and shows us how godly it is and how he can be verified. And how sincere, verse 18, um, basically he's saying there, he who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself, but he works for the honor of the one who sent him as a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. It's um, sincere without falsehood. I haven't time really to, to go with that. But let's think lastly of the challenge of his uh, teaching in these last few, um, these last few verses. Verse 19, let's read that. Has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? See, God gave them the law as a gift, a beautiful gift. And look at what they did with this godly gift. He said, None of you keep it, yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? He says, You're prepared to break the sixth commandment, Thou shalt not kill, because I helped heal a sick man who was sick for 38 years. You're lawbreakers, he says. Every single one of you. Because when you break one, you break them all. And that's why we need a Savior who kept them all and died so that we might be free from our sin. You're lawbreakers. And you're, he says you're also hypocrites, verse 20 to 23. There he basically says, you deny me the right to heal on the Sabbath, but look at what you do you circumcise on the Sabbath. He just takes one example. You circumcise little boys on the Sabbath without any problem. But I'm not allowed to heal somebody who's sick for 38 years on the Sabbath. Healing? No. Circumcision? Yes. You're just a bunch of hypocrites, he says. The perfect teacher. Do you know what he does? Do you know what Jesus does if we listen to him carefully? The real Jesus He reveals who we really are, so we see ourselves as we really are. Let us examine ourselves before the perfect and real Jesus. That last verse 24 I think is important. Verse 24, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. You see, his brothers were doing that. His enemies were doing that. Everybody seemed to be doing that. Just judging by mere appearance. And you remember what we said last week? Oh, he's the local boy, he, he, and now he, he's just our brother or half brother. He's just a man. And Jesus was saying, "Would you stop judging by mere appearance as make a maker-right judgment?" So, so we've got, we as a people, we've got to be careful that we don't create an image of Jesus that's not real. We don't judge him by our own standards, by our own backgrounds, by our own thinking. We don't make him in our image. We don't create a Jesus to suit our temperament. We don't create a Jesus to suit our background. We don't create a Jesus to suit our needs. We say, please, the real Jesus, reveal yourself to me and let me enjoy you. The real Jesus. The real Jesus. We're going to see more pictures of him in in chapter 7 and in chapter 8 and 9 and 10. Perfect in his timing because the cross and resurrection central to his mission. At the right time, I will go. Not now. Perfect in his teaching. The truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And here's the bottom line, folks. In every generation, right back in that first generation, and even today, some will accept and trust this message, and mature, and mature, others will reject and recreate Jesus in their own image to help them cope with their lack of a will to obey. Do you want the real Jesus? He's here in the Scriptures, and by His Spirit, we can know Him and experience Him. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you that you are real. And we pray that we will want you and know you and love you, be empowered by you, saved by you, and obedient to you. And we pray that very often we restrict you, we make you in our own image, and we need a new revelation, a fresh revelation of who you are through your word and by your spirit. Give us hunger and thirst for all this beautiful truth. And may we honor you and love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.